Scott, as of today, we have as many episodes as there are live-action Spider-Man movies. Let's see if we can get as many as there are Fast and and Furious. Furious. This is the The Fast and the Furious Think Tank. The Exquisite Corpse Project. So, Matt, uh, you are the one who suggested this idea. What exactly is the Exquisite Corpse Project, and what does Exquisite Corpse mean? So, the Exquisite Corpse Project is a 2012 movie based around the basic premise of a party game known as the Exquisite Corpse. So, the way you play the game Exquisite Corpse is where you divide a paper into thirds, and each person draws a picture of a third of a human, but he or she doesn't get to see what the other two thirds look like. So as a result, you get this humorous kind of creepy at times juxtaposition of all the different ideas of what each author thought a person should look like. So you'd have, say, one person with a funny head and then a mismatching body and then the last person making mismatching legs. But in the movie, what they did is they tried to do that same premise with a screenplay since they were writers. They made it into, they had five parts rather than three, and each person was to make a 15-minute, 15-page segment of the movie, and they could only read the previous five pages of the script. To just put it in perspective, imagine being person number three, and you get to read pages 25 through 30, but you have no idea how the story started. You have no idea what the initial conflict was. Or to give a second example, imagine being person number five out of five. It's your goal to wrap up the plot, but you don't know what the plot was. And you have to tie up loose ends, but you don't really know what those loose ends are. So at the end of the movie, the the movie itself not only has the actual footage of the screenplay, but also goes along with the writers and shows their experiences working with each other. They had been they were all friends. And it shows sort of what each person thought reading through the script, looking at what they had and where their thought process of where they would go from there. In a sense, it's simultaneously a documentary, but it also shows the full extent of the movie within the movie that they created. And an additional rule that they threw in was that each new person got a list of character names and the sentence fragment description of who they are and a list of settings that had been in the, pl- in the movie so far. So as a result, as you can probably guess, the genre of the movie changed every time someone new came along. For example, it started out as a psychological crime thriller but then transitioned into a sitcom which turned into like an erotic horror which then transitioned into a a wuxia martial art fantasy and then finished as a sort of romantic dramedy. In the end the final project seemed rather coherent overall but at each stage it did see a large shift not just in tone but also in like the relationships between the characters since it wasn't well defined and if you couldn't pick it up from the last five pages you really didn't know who 
person A was in relation to person B sometimes. One thing that I really liked was that number three was surprisingly true to number two, and number four was not true to number three, but ironically, number three was intentionally completely disregarding continuity, but then just seeming by chance just happened to get it right, while number four was trying to be true to number three, but just misinterpreted the relationships and the histories because he only had five pages. In fact, I'm pretty sure at the beginning of number three, the characters literally look at the camera and say, everything is going to be different now. Yeah. And I, one of the complaints from uh, one of the writers was that the person after them had, had basically taken what they were throwing at them and then just glossed over it to sort of restart anew. And that was sort of what each of them, each part did. Since you don't exactly know what's going to happen, like one person did the everything's going to be different now. Uh, the final one did a time skip. A classic four and a half years later. And yeah, others just sort of misinterpreted it in different ways or tried to clarify things just to set it into the current situation that they were going to build mm -hmm. off of. Yeah, that actually brings me to my next point that even though I loved the movie as a whole and I was guffawing with laughter, literally crying uh, tears of joy, I was actually a little bit disappointed because, as everyone knows, the first rule of improv is just go with it, and the second rule of improv is always say yes. And so when they're playing this game of improv and they're so clearly disregarding the fundamental tenets of improv, it it kind of struck a bad chord with me. It's, would you agree with that? I feel like from a viewing standpoint, it would make it seem like it was... There was a lack of continuity in that sense, and that was sort of problematic. But in a writing standpoint, I feel like I'd agree more with their choices because just imagine putting myself, like imagining myself in their shoes of what I would do if I was just given, because they do tell you where they started reading, mm -hmm. and you're thinking, how would you relate any of that to the previous three people who wrote anything? And I'm sure if I was just reading from there, I'd also think like, what could have happened to lead to this point and where could I go from here if I don't just restart a little? Uh, yeah, I guess I see your point that like probably the greatest, uh, de what's the word, like detachment, the greatest discount, probably the greatest discontinuity between number four and number five. All number five had to go on was a martial art, magic, demonic fight scene where they're casting spells in Korean and snake spirits are possessing women and there really wasn't a, a plot at all. So maybe maybe I might backpedal what I said earlier and give number five the credit that it's hard to build off of something that doesn't really make sense to begin with. It's hard to say yes when there isn't really anything to say yes to. And especially with number five, since you have to resolve all that conflict mm. and you don't exactly know what the conflict that you jumped into is, it just seems easier to throw away the conflict and sort of go for the main lessons of that conflict like you did. Uh-huh. And I think that transitions into a another point that I'd like to bring up, that within the movie, the guy, the number five kind of expertly wrapped it all up by saying, man, we've changed so much. And... uh and so, in a sense, he concludes the story by saying, this is, a, this is a tale of people who change and decide to go their separate ways. And what's beautiful is that the meta story is kind of like that, too. It's about, like, five friends who have become distant, um, the writers, and as, like, one final thing together before they go off on their separate ways, they make their movie. And I think I was telling you about this earlier today that 
so many stories, uh, for example, romantic comedies are about a couple who's grown apart, but then reunites in the end and they realize how much they love each other. But this kind of turns it on its head where they say, you know what? They maybe they aren't meant for each other. Maybe they should go their separate ways. And that's OK. It's OK for people to forge their own paths sometimes. And I find that kind of beautiful. But I guess when you're writing the last part, you're also sort of thinking, were they in a relationship? <laughs> <laughs> well, I meant that both the as the movie within the movie, but also the meta movie. Yeah. So listening to this, you might think something like, well, surely guy number one uh, has by far the most power. He dictates the, the initial premise and the general arc of the story, right? I mean, that would be reasonable. I mean, he would set up the protagonist and introduce all the first characters and settings that we see. But in fact, we found that's not what actually happens because since nobody knows what the first three pages are anyway, it can really be taken in any direction. Uh, like I said, guy number one story was something along the lines of a couple who is who are kleptomaniacs and bond over stealing things, and the story ends with one of the main characters who is introduced in the beginning owning a museum, and then just two jumps later, we're in the middle of a Karate Kid parody. Yeah, which is kind of the opposite of somebody who. Oh wait, wait. Insert political thing about maybe a museum is just a bunch of stolen stuff. But I'm. <laughs> So Scott and I, after watching this movie, thought, what if we were to get some friends together and do the project ourselves? Roger Newman part two! Since we're in an audio-only format, we're going for more of the short story route than a screenplay route. We'll get five friends, and each friend will make... Each friend will write a five-page short story, and each new person only reads the previous two pages, and then... Uh, once the whole story is done, we'll put it all together and uh, perhaps read it in real time so we can record their reactions and see what happens. And uh, I'm freestyling here, but I think I'd like to add the rule that they didn't play with where we have to at least try to be continuous with the next person. The like person number three can't spit on what number two said and said, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. This is the real story. There has to be at least some sort of teamwork involved would, would you agree that's a rule that should be a rule yeah at least i mean not necessarily that you can't sort of change things up just that you have to strive for continuity and can't i mean uh one of the things in um in the movie was that the second person to go when he sent in his pages to the friend who the sixth friend who had put it all together and asked his five friends to write the movie his the friend rejected the pages and said try again so then He's um, the second person saying he had felt disrespected began to sort of think of the most outlandish things he could think of and then put them in the story, which was discontinuous with the first person. So obviously we're not going to send back any of our friends pages, but we would also hope that they wouldn't just try and make some sort of overly outlandish thing that has no continuity with the person before it because we feel that would be rude. To the person before it who put in the effort of their five pages. Yeah, well said. Respect. And do you want to take part in it ourselves like you heroically did with the plight of Roger Newman? Yeah, I don't see why not. Sweet. Without further ado, these are our results. All right, everybody. So six weeks have passed since the previous recording. And over the time, we have written a 15 or rather 16 page long exquisite corpse story. 
So we have in the studio today a few of our friends, not just me and Matt, but Alana, Tim, and Haiti. Uh, Alana, do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and maybe sum up your entire persona in one sentence? You know, just a, a easy, casual task. Hi, my name is Alana, and I like dancing, and I also enjoy comic books. Thank you for that, Alana. Tim, would you like to briefly introduce yourself? Um, hi, I'm Tim, and my parents used to tell me that they found me by a dumpster, and that's my life story. And finally, our fifth uh, participant in this Exquisite Corpse project is Haiti. I uh, am a professional at falling down, but I also enjoy climbing trees. All right, uh, let's get towards reading the actual story. Our order was Matt to begin with, Haiti to follow, Tim on number three, Alana the penultimate, and myself getting to finish the story. We will start off by each person reading their story, and after their two pages, we will stop, have the next person say, this is where I started reading, or I started reading here, so you understand sort of what they're seeing before they write their part of the story. The person speaking will finish their part, and then the next person will continue with their part. And after the whole story is complete, if we have extra time, perhaps we can share our thoughts on the story as a whole and uh, the emotions we are going through when we read that one page. So, without further ado, Matt, take it away. The purple glow emanating from the horizon dragged across the darkening sky. Several shopping carts lay strewn throughout the vastness of the empty parking lot. Extending the cuff of his shirt to cover his hand, Dennis wiped sweat from the side of his face. As he traversed the store and mart parking lot, the wind tugged at the ends of his coat. He was finally headed home. Too tired to climb the stairs in his apartment complex, Dennis collected his mail, pushed his back to the lobby wall, and slowly slumped into the ground. Inhaling deeply, his blinks began to drag on. How long was his last blink? Twenty seconds? An hour? He didn't remember the sun being up. Just as the sun rises, so must I. He took each step at an almost ritualistically slow pace. Upon reaching his apartment door, he took a deep breath and exhaling, twisted the key, unlocking the door. The apartment was still quiet. Perfection. With great precision, he removed a pan from the cupboard and disposed of the empty shells of his freshly cracked eggs. A voice came from across the kitchen counter. Hey, hon. Did you just get back? Yeah, it was a long day yesterday, and I couldn't make it home. They missed you, you know. You and I both know I would have just been. He poured the beaten eggs into the sizzling pan. Too grumpy from work to interact with them. Grumpy or not, they miss you, and just want to make sure you get back home safe. Promise me you'll get back home before they go to sleep tonight? Dennis sighed, knowing very well he may not be able to keep his word. I promise, he said. You get a little more sleep before you have to leave. I can finish up breakfast. Wielding the spatula in his hand, Dennis tightened his grip and simply shook his head. This spatula was his only weapon in his fight to show he still mattered to this family. Okay, hon, but try to take it easy today, she said. Looking back at the yolks moving across the pan, Dennis believed he could smell the rest of the egg burning below the surface. He took his spatula and began scrambling until the raw yolk could no longer be distinguished from the burned bits on the bottom of the pan. They had become one and in this mess of overdone egg whites and runny yolks, neither Dennis nor his wife and kids could tell that the burn bits were strewn within their breakfast. An hour after breakfast, Dennis went down to the subway, a few streets from the complex. Garbage reeked, 
Musicians begged. Dennis stood, waited, listened, smelled, closed his eyes, inhaled, smelled. God, how it smelled in there. Exhaled, opened his eyes, boarded the train, and set off for work. As the subway rocked back and forth, a pain emerged in Dennis's stomach. He took a seat next to a peculiar man with wide-rimmed glasses. Great minds, am I right? He inquired. Excuse me, replied Dennis. Your coat, it's the same as mine. I was implying that we both have good taste in clothes. Dennis awkwardly laughed, confused as to why this stranger thought it was necessary to strike up this conversation, or even make a comment on clothes. Haha, <laughs> thanks. He shut his eyes to try and forget about the growing discomfort within his stomach. Hey, aren't you tired of the ride? Dennis was confused. Not so much by the question itself, rather as to why the guy kept talking to him. What do you mean? I mean, what day is it? Thursday? How much do you want to bet you and I are both headed to work right now? And I'll give you double nothing odds on that bet that this is the same subway you take to work every day. Every day it's the same thing. We wait, we board, or I guess you could say we are bored, haha. <laughs> but most importantly, we ride. Every day, same time, same line, same destination. The man's words took Dennis's mind off of the sickness he felt, so Dennis decided to see how far this man was willing to go on the matter. Well, what makes this day any more tiring than the other days? That's the point. It's not just tiring today, it's tiring every day. The car began to rock rather aggressively just before coming to a rather abrupt halt. Shaken, Dennis vomited on the floor of the subway, as well as the shoes of the man next to him. Scanning the boxes of groceries at the store in Mart, Dennis could only think of the smell from the vomit stains on his shoe. Today was not the day to wear his leather loafers. It occurred to him that it was really never the day to wear his loafers. If they weren't sitting in the closet waiting for the next funeral in his family, they were on his feet waiting for misfortune to strike. At around half past four, his manager came over. Oi, Dennis, you mind locking up today? Kinda, sir. I've locked up the last eight nights, and I kinda promised my wife I'd be home before the kids went to bed tonight. You're getting out at eight. What the hell's stopping you from getting there before nine? I also told Serenity I would see her before I got home, Dennis explained. Unimpressed, his boss said, You know store policy. If it ain't a family matter, it ain't a business matter. But no buts. You don't think other people would kill for the extra hours? I'm giving you an opportunity tonight. Hell, I've been giving you an opportunity the last eight nights. The extra 20 bucks I am putting in your pocket every night is the difference between you making rent or ending up in one room for the four of you back home. So I don't want to hear no meeting with serenity or going home to the kids. I want to hear thank you, he said. Dennis stayed quiet, and begrudgingly, he went back to scanning oatmeal boxes for the elderly lady who had to sit through the whole interaction. He inhaled and couldn't tell if he was smelling the oatmeal through the box or the lady. Either way, it smelled of aged oats. He shouldn't talk to you like that, she said. <laughs> Excuse me, miss? Yo, boss. He shouldn't treat you like that. Well, why not? He signs my paycheck, doesn't he? He has what I need, so I gotta do what he says. You ever stop to ask why he asks you to do it? I bet you got something he wants, too. I bet you're more responsible than half the people at this place. You think he'd ask your help so often just to torture you? I started reading here. Everybody has a reason for their actions. This is probably based on a sense of trust. You know, you'll do it, so he asks. Well, I don't do it out of a sense of responsibility. I do it so I don't get fired. 
she was skeptical to trust him. You think if you messed up once it would really be that bad? You have what he wants just as much as he has what you want. Maybe keep that in mind next time he tries to talk to you like that. Dennis looked at the groceries, perfectly organized within the bag. Heavy things on bottom, and more fragile items on top. He tore the receipt from the register and handing it to her said, Have a good day, miss. Three hours later, Dennis was getting the shop keys out. He didn't know exactly how long, but the store had been pretty empty for a while. Double check each register is off, make sure nobody's lingering, lock all the doors inside, turn off the main lights, and finally go outside. The lot smelled of burning rubber and garbage, but looking down at the keys, Dennis smelled nothing but oatmeal. He closed his eyes, locked the door, and walked away. Having already missed his dinner plans, Dennis headed home. An hour commute. He didn't have to be too late. Maybe he'd make it in time to share dessert with them. All he had to do was ride. Entering the lobby of the complex, he went to get the mail. Only bills and his latest paycheck. What's this? A package on the counter? For him, maybe? No, not his name on the package. Too tired to climb the stairs for the second night in a row, he once more put his back against the wall and sank into the floor. Sitting there, he waited as each blink took minutes. His body jutted. He had no idea what caused it. A dream, perhaps. He had fallen asleep an hour ago. Ten o'clock now? He was probably already late. Not seeing them was one thing, but another night in the lobby, he'd never hear the end of it. He trudged up the stairs. Arriving at the door, Dennis inserted the key into the lock. Laughter from within the walls. He took a deep inhale. I can hear them. They're still awake. I don't have to let them down again. Not this time. Not tonight. He gripped the key, hoping it would turn itself. Filled with a great sense of guilt, maybe self-pity, and the scent of vomit from his shoes, he relaxed his hand. His grip loosened and the keys fell, clambering against the door. A slight jingle emanated from them. He exhaled. Turning away, he walked down the stairs. Each step made him feel light, awake even. Just before leaving the complex, he stopped and checked his wallet. Upon inspection of its contents, he frowned. He began up the stairs, disheartened. Each step brought on a weight, heavier than before. Realizing he had felt more euphoria in the last few seconds than the last four years, he paused. Please don't make me go back, he thought. But wait. What had he seen? He remembered seeing something. This was no time to forget. He had to remember. He couldn't have forgotten. If he just tried a little harder, maybe he'd... Ah, yes. He ran back down the stairs and darted across the room. It was the new box from before. Taking it in his arms, he read the name on it. Sorry, Mrs. Schwarmin-Cow-Will? Let's call this an early retirement gift from you to me. Thanks. He marched to the door, stood in the doorway, and inhaled deeply. Even though he couldn't see the stars that night, he could smell the cosmos. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so pumped. Okay. That night washed over Dennis in a glowing blur of street signs and billboards. He took the subway as far as it could go, listening to the first radio station that came on his phone, which he almost switched, but didn't, because a kind-sounding woman was introducing her new album. Dennis didn't particularly enjoy the album, an odd blend of jazz and indie, but he could hear her smiling as she smoked over the muffled intro of the first track. There was something Dennis felt, something freeing, that made him want to smile too for the first time in a while. By midnight, Dennis had left the subway and headed out to the city's cacophony of neon. 
He sat in a modest park on the side of an intersection and watched the flashes as if they were stars streaked across the dew beginning to form on the street. He woke up the next morning nested in a tree, unsure of when or why he had decided to climb it, but happy with his gentle distance from the concrete jungle below. As he re-examined the lights around him, less romantic in the sharp early morning sunlight, he caught a glimpse of a name and a small storefront tucked into a corner on the other side of the street. Shorman Cowl. The name jolted Dennis awake, and as he jumped rather clumsily down from the tree, he felt a chill through his back. As he reached for the package tucked into his bag, the chill entered his fingertips and shot through his arm, reflexively sending his hand in the package flying. Dennis shook off the unexpected motion and scrambled to the package, which had landed several feet away in a patch of red flowers. In quickly picking up the box, he felt a sharp prick of the flower's thorns and heard a scratch as the side of the box tore partially open. Dennis wrapped the package in his arms and held it tightly to his chest. Suddenly, off balance, he found a bench and planted himself down. Inhale. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. Finally steady, the previous night began to dawn on Dennis, leaving his family, the music of the subway, finally feeling free, and the package. Looking down, Dennis saw that his pricked palm had begun to stain a few small drops of blood on the woman's name. He looked back up to see the store again, and it had appeared to recede further into the street corner than from his perspective up in the tree. Should he keep it? He had no means other than whatever the package contained, but his euphoric independence from last night had subsided slightly to make room for his timidness, or perhaps empathy. With no explanation to the disheveled, torn, and slightly bloody state of the box, Dennis crossed the street and approached the fading, hand-painted, cursive Schwarman cowl sign. A faint, open sign welcomed him into the doorway, but only a dim light was visible from deep into the deceptively spacious business? What kind of business was it? With an inhale and a nod of self-reassurance, he reached out and opened the old door. Hello, Dennis called, gazing around the rows of shelves surrounding him. Mrs. Schwarman cowl? The store was full of papers, everywhere. Loosely bound documents in tedious stacks, book with illegible titles, and especially letters. Envelopes littered the shelves, the floor, even the store's entrance, Dennis noticed as he shifted his feet to avoid stepping on one. He had begun to call out again when he heard a sudden noise past the first few rows of shelves, around the light. Stepping carefully on the clear patches of intricately tiled floor, Dennis moved into the maze of shelves. Miss Shorman Cowell, he called again, slightly more hopeful. Thud. Dennis spun to his right where the sound came from and saw a huge stack of letters fallen on the floor. Sorry, he called out instinctively, floundering to pick up the letters, as if his presence had somehow been to blame for the mess. As he held up the first few envelopes, he saw a familiar chicken-scratch handwriting on the fold. As he turned them over, he quickly recognized the harsh strokes of the same name over and over and over again. Shorman Cowell. Dennis, setting the letters down with a confused stare, held up the package to confirm the odd penmanship. Curious, he held up the letters again, sifting through the several unopened ones until he found three that had, that had been haphazardly torn open across the front. With a cautious glance to either side for the mysterious store owner, he gingerly picked out a few of the messages within. Nearly as soon as he read them, he dropped the package with a startled jump backwards. Don't open the box, it said. And then another letter. Don't open it, my love. And then another. Do not. As he looked around the mountains of letters, all with the same recipient, Miss Schwarman Cowell, he noticed that upon impact, a soft music box melody had begun to play from within the package. What? Dennis stammered to himself, stepping slowly backwards without watching out for a stack of papers in his way that sent him tumbling backwards. Are you all right? Dennis's head shot up towards the voice. I started reading here. 
I'm sorry. I, Dennis struggled to find words to explain, taken aback by the young woman in front of him. It's okay. Are you okay? She said, concerned. I'm Serenity. I know, Dennis began, confused. Didn't we? But Serenity had already turned away, her gaze fixed on the package still gently playing its song across the floor. Do you know, she started cautiously, what that is? No, I just found it and saw the name and brought it in, Dennis responded. The store is called Sh Shorman Cowell, right? Shorman Cowell, yes, Serenity responded. We should go. Of course, Dennis responded, suddenly hyper aware of intruding on the unfamiliar space. He rose to face the sunlit entrance. But Serenity had already begun to glide through the maze of shelves. With a sharp turn to look back at Dennis, she motioned away from the sun towards a door in the back of the room. Let's go. Still confused, but energized with the spontaneity of the past evening, Dennis began to follow, reaching the door just as the song began to climb into its hook. Inside, a staircase spiraled downwards towards a jazzy cove of books and tapestries. After 30 seconds of silence and slowing breaths, Dennis's eyes fluttered around the colorful room and paused on a steaming pot of soup and bread. Okay, we're fine here, Serenity began, noticing his gaze. Want some? Please, Dennis smiled appreciatively, realizing how empty his stomach had been since he had set home from work the night before. Kev, could you grab a bowl for soup? After a moment, a grinning figure emerged from behind a tapestry with a hand-painted ceramic bowl. Long time no see, sis, the figure teased, revealing a bright smile and a single dimple on his left cheek. Here you go. Dennis. Dennis, I'm Kev. The words rolled off his tongue as he generously filled the bowl and tore off a chunk of bread. What is this place? Dennis asked, taking the food. Serenity reached over to tidy a chair. Not entirely sure, she said with a chuckle. We work for Schwarman Cowell. Watch over her crap upstairs and then get to crash down here. She turned to her brother, suddenly serious. He found the box. Where is she? Kev responded in a steady tone. Not here yet, Serenity answered. Should we be worried? She's never been later than 30 seconds. A minute, at worst. Should we use the hatch? This is number five, right? Yeah, only one more to go. They made a strained eye contact for a moment until Kev turned as Dennis sat down the bowl. Okay, what is this? Dennis repeated. What's the deal with Shorman Cowell on the boxes? We aren't completely sure, Kev admitted, turning to Serenity. The hatch? Really? Maybe she's just late. Straining to keep a calm face, Serenity turned back to him. This one sang. As if on cue, the melody from upstairs crescendoed into chorus. Serenity was already halfway across the room. Let's go, Kev said in an attempted calm, reaching his hand out to Dennis. He took it. I'm so excited to see what happens. Oh. The beat of a bass drum pounded through the building, dancing below a soaring melody. Pulling aside a curtain, Serenity knelt down to wrangle open a creaky old trapdoor. David peered down into the inky depths. <laughs> um, down here? Yep, easy jump. Tick tock, on the clock, we gotta get moving. And Kev shoved David in. David's shrieking did little to abate his fear, nor did it harmonize with the music slowly fading into the distance. It did, however, ensure Serenity and Kev that he was indeed there, slipping and sliding down what one could only assume was a tube, leading deep into the bowels of the Shorman Co. Well store. With a thunk, the three of them landed in a pile in a stone corridor. Or more precisely, Serenity was prepared to land neatly on her feet, before she tripped over Kev, who had tripped over David, who had acquainted his face with the floor. <laughs> he knew he was getting too old for this. Groaning as he got to his feet, David managed to feeble, And where the hell are we? Just a little center of operations, that's all, Kev said, giving David a slap on the back. 
Her absence at this time means we will be making a rendezvous at Filbert's. We'll send a message now, and she should be able to fill you in from there. Wait, I hear something. Or someone. Serenity flattened against the cold wall and began inching quietly down the hall. Making their way down the hall, they caught a whiff of cheery major chords. Background music, Kev spat. At least it's not elevator music. Serenity passed them a worried look. As they reached the corner, they heard a woman's voice. Quaint little place. Shame we'll have to go. Oh, I do believe our friends have arrived. Come on out now. No use hiding. You know why we're here. Around the corner was a cozy office space. At its center was an aged oak desk sitting in front of a wall filled with screens, feeds coming in from various parts of what Dennis assumed was the store. Sitting behind a carved old desk was a woman, scarlet suit and ageless Botox face with a blossoming cruel red smile. Standing on her side was a man, very average, very gray pastel, cheery in much the manner of used wrapping paper. The background music had grown so in intense you could barely hear it anymore, so deeply in the background it was. The atmosphere, however, was as thick as cold butter. Denise. Chills. Why, hello, Serenity. Glad to see you still exist. All right, cough it up. She stood up and sauntered over, heels clacking, hand out reaching. Where's Rebecca? Tell us, tell me, how did you get here? Don't make me ask again, dear. Where is it? I know you got the fifth one. Come on, Carter, help me with these rascals. Dennis could feel his heart racing. Also, who's this new one? Hello there. I'm, oh, well, he's got it right here. She snapped the box out of Dennis's hand. All right, Carter, let's go. Our work here is done. You, you, you bitch. <laughs> Serenity let a slap rip across her face. Kev, grab the box. Denise stumbled. Damn, you, root, insolent. Carter tackled Serenity into the ground. Huh, well, you'll be seeing my daughter-in-law soon enough now. Dennis leaned over the Kev. Yeah, so, um, thanks for the soup and all, but I, uh, think I'm going to, you know, get going now. If you could just, you know, point me towards the exit, that'd be great, you know. This was really quite enough for one day for him. Just as he stepped into the hall, a small knife buried itself just millimeters before his face. Now where do you think you're going? Dennis turned to see Denise holding a second knife in her hand. No one's going anywhere until I acquired that box. Come on now, Kevlin, give it. She began closing on to Kev, himself back into the wall. Serenity coughed as Carter shoved her harder into the ground. Dennis's hands were now impeccably clammy, but at least he thought to himself, his pants would remain thoroughly dry. <laughs> From below Carter, Serenity gasped out a few words. Run, you nitwits! Get to the ship! But trapped between his fear and shame, Dennis could muster little will to move. Kev was also struggling to navigate between a wall and a knife. And then a phone rang. Hello, this is Denise Saperstein, Megamart Regional Manager. How <laughs> can I help you? Fuck. <laughs> Hello, this is Denise Saperstein, Megamart Regional Manager. How can I help you? Kev took this moment to kick the knife out of her hand, passing a heavy-hearted glance to his sister before barreling down the hall pulling Dennis with him. Behind them came a rush of shouting. Why'd you have to call me now? I know, I know, I'm working the case, like, literally right now. They're literally getting, oh, oh my lord, yes, I'm on it, yes, yes, the box, yes, let me, uh, do my job, ah! Feet slamming into the ground, Kev pulled Dennis with them down a stairwell just as another knife clanged into the wall above their heads. Leave the girl, get that box, Carter! Two left turns, a right, a left, then another left, and into a dusty closet. Dennis was absolutely heaving. High school track was much further back in his past than he remembered. Pulling aside a cloth tarp and kicking up a cloud of dust, Kev revealed a silver dual tricycle. Come on, unless you prefer getting shanked. Um, what? There's a wall? Get in and pedal. Well, Dennis figured, this really won't be the weirdest thing today, and got in, pedaling towards the closet wall. As he was getting in, however, Kev cranked a lever on the far wall before jumping in himself, and the floor gave out beneath them. Like a pair of double doors, the floorboards swung outwards and they plummeted into the open sky, or more like straight down towards the earth.
Kev at this point realized Dennis forgot his seatbelt. Dennis at this point really had much wetter pants. Ah! Reaching up to grab him before he slipped, Kev tugged down on Dennis's leg, throwing him back into his seat. Come on, come on, come on, strap in, jeez. Why are we falling? Because you're not pedaling! Ah! But as Dennis began feeling the burn, he noticed the tricycle did begin to level out and cruise, giving him a chance to take in the view. Below him lay a small town, which he assumed to be their own town. And this is where I started reading. Looking back behind him, he saw the open floor, two halves swinging below a passing cloud. So, j just a quick question, how did we get into a cloud? Seriously man, it's easier to just not worry about it. Shoot, wait, where's the box? Oh goddamn, no, 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 no. It must have fell out when I went to grab you, damn it. Alright man, get ready for a little turbulence. Grabbing the handlebars, Kev sent the tricycle into a dive, once more plummeting to the hard, certainly very crunchy ground. Dennis could feel the soup coming up for another oral soiree, as the sky was now his ground and the ground his sky. But Kev flew that tricycle like a fish swims a swim, spiraling- <laughs> But Kev flew that tricycle like a fish swims a swim. Spiraling through the air, he chased after a glint flashing before his eyes. Hold on! And he dived right past the box, before jerking sharply up, blood rushing to their feet, stars blinding their eyes. The box plunked right into the tricycle, and Kev quickly snatched it back up. Dennis blacked out. Dennis came too to the strong scent of sawdust and paint, faint country music jangling in his ears. He found himself strewn out on an old beat-up sofa in a small office. Sitting up, he saw a paper cup of water on the coffee table and grabbed a sip. If this was purgatory, it wasn't so bad. Looking across the room, he saw through the doorway Kev chatting with the bearded man in plaid. Guess St. Peter's a pretty chill guy, he thought to himself. But Kev saw that he was awake and quickly rushed over. Hey, how are you feeling? Sorry for the sudden run, but we're safe now. This is Philbert, owner of Philbert's Hardware. The burly man stuck out a hand. Dennis got up, carefully, and shook the man's hand. I'm feeling okay. Could use some more soup, though. Uh, what? Where am I? Oh, man, wait, Filbert's Hardware? Like, where they have the fireworks every year? Why, what? Kev guided Dennis back down to the couch. He's the one who found the box. How much does he know? Well, I don't actually know much about this either. Serenity and I just know we're supposed to come here if something's up. Maybe you could help fill us in? Hmm. Filbert took a long look at the two of them before pulling up a chair. You said Rebecca's missing then. Haha. <laughs> well, I guess it's up to me to fill you in. Well... Long ago, this land was the site of a yearly market ordained by the spirits. Guided by the songbirds, peoples gathered from all places to trade and barter. But soon people began to settle here, and much of the wild magic was driven away. A few of us stall keepers decided- <laughs> What? Oh! A few of us stall keepers decided to set up shop and protect what magic was left in these lands. Passed down for generations, Rebecca's Swarm and Co. will store, me and my shop, the grocer, the butcher, even the baker. We have protected these lands. When the birds left, they were left six songs, teeny little slippets, but each very powerful. When brought together, their combined melodies will harness the true wild forces. We have tried to keep them hidden and hopefully forgotten, but as you may know, Megamart is also after them. We know they hope to assemble them all before the summer music festival and use the music there to cast us away and put up yet another Megamart. A fate suffered by many towns and putting that magic to dead once and for all. I believe you've met Denise from Megamart, right? I don't think I've met anyone colder, he chuckled. I still can't believe she's Rebecca's mother-in-law. This makes it all a family matter, don't it?
Wow, I always felt like there was something different about this place. The air always felt tingly, remarked Kev. Filbert chuckled. It has that effect on people, I suppose. Now, where were we? Ah, yes, the songs. Yeah, what's so special about them anyways, asked Dennis. It's just music. Filbert gasped. His face looked as though Dennis had just told him he didn't believe 47 was a special number. They're, they are far from just music. When combined, these melodies create a song so powerful it can grant someone eternal joy and happiness. But in the wrong hands, it can cause someone to begin sobbing uncontrollably, unable to stop until their last breath. Both Kev and Dennis were stunned. Never before had they heard of a song this powerful or dangerous. I have no doubt Denise is after these melodies. After all, Megamart has been falling behind in sales recently, and the song can be used to manipulate people for profit. Already, the baker and grocer have said their songs have been taken by force. You said Rebecca was one of the song's guardians, right? asked Kev. Filbert nodded. Then in that case, Denise must have Rebecca. There's no other explanation for her sudden disappearance. You're right. Rebecca had hidden two of the songs. If we don't find her in time, Denise could have access to almost all of the power she needs. Okay, great idea and all, but we don't even know where the rest of the songs are, Dennis pointed out. Filbert nodded. True, but we do have something else useful, he pointed at the box. The contents of this box should help us locate one of the two songs Rebecca hid. Great, then let's open it. Kev grabbed the box, but stopped as he looked at it more closely. What the heck? There's no key and it won't open. Filbert laughed again. You forget you're dealing with magic here. The box requires a secret password. Are you serious? We're just supposed to say, open sesame and it'll open? Clink. Kev and Dennis froze. They looked down to see the box partially open and definitely unlocked. You've got to be kidding me. That was way too simple. Filbert gently grabbed the box from Kev. Some people refuse to think simply and go straight for the incantations. Now, let's see what we've got here. A single piece of paper was in Filbert's hand. On it was written what appeared to be a riddle. I scare people, but I am not living. I encompass both the light and darkness. I am not vast, but where can you find me? Just look underneath the pot of gold and you shall be told. What, what does that even mean? Silence. All three looked at each other with confusion prominent in their eyes. Filbert sighed. We'll figure it out. We just have to take each piece separately and work from there. Okay. First is I scare people, but I'm not living. Kev scratched his head. What are some things that fit that description? Dolls. They're freaking creepy as heck. Dennis already looked pale at his own suggestion. Okay, Kev nodded, but I don't think they fit the second line. I encompass both the light and darkness. It has to be something else. Well, what about a basement or something? Those are prime horror movie locations. Filbert suddenly jumped to his feet. There's a secret cellar underneath the Schwarman Cowl store. That must be where Rebecca hid one of the songs. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go. It's locked. Kev tried to open the store's back door for the third time. Filbert let out a huge sigh. Have you boys learned nothing? Open Sesame. Both Kev and Dennis grumbled under their breaths as the door slowly creaked open. All three carefully walked in, surveying the state of the room they just entered. It appeared to be in the back office. Shelves of boxes lined the walls, and a large desk was shoved to the far corner. They continued through the door leading to the main store. The large room was filled with seemingly endless shelves filled to the brink with antiques of all sorts. Dennis eyed the old porcelain dolls with great suspicion as the trio made, made their way to the store's counter. Okay, we're here. I don't see any entrance to any sort of basement. That's because it's a secret cellar. Think about the last line of the riddle. That should tell us where to look. I don't know about you, but I definitely don't see any leprechauns or pots of gold. Dennis, I don't think we're meant to take that seriously. Think about it. A pot is where a leprechaun keeps his gold. Where would Rebecca keep hers? All three looked at the old cash register sitting atop the counter. Kev quickly walked over and carefully lifted it up. Underneath was a simple, small red button. 
Dennis looks skeptical. Do we just push it? That seems a bit risky. The color red usually means bad things. Oh, come on. This is Rebecca we're talking about. It's fine. Kev pushed the button and all three simultaneously held their breaths. A loud creaking noise suddenly filled the silent store and the ground under Kev's feet began shifting slightly. Kev managed to step off the moving floorboards just in time. Where he had been standing seconds ago was a set of steep stairs leading into pitch black. I call not going down first, Dennis said nervously. I began reading here. Philbert rolled his eyes again and pushed through the two others. Come on, it's not that scary. It's just the dark. He took out a small flashlight and began descending the stairs. Kev quickly followed him. But I'm afraid of the dark, Dennis mumbled under his breath. Dennis, hurry your butt up. Okay, okay, geez. As soon as Dennis disappeared into the darkness, the floor suddenly moved back into its original position, the store appearing as if nothing had changed. Gosh, it's so dusty in here. Shit, Kev, did you just brush up against me? What? Dennis, no, I'm over here. What the hell? Was that a rat? Oh, God. Will you two quit your whining? I found the light switch. Suddenly, the room was illuminated with a dim yellow light. Wow, it's creepy in here. Shut up, Kev. The three looked around the small cellar. Kev waved the dust away from his face. Okay, so what now? Well, we put each of the songs into bottles to keep them safe. We just have to find a clear glass bottle with a dark brown cork. Should be simple enough. Philbert trailed off as all three looked at the far wall of the cellar, where at least 60 boxes were filled with all sorts of glass bottles. Dennis grimaced. Yeah, simple. Kev sighed. Well, we better start looking. Dennis groaned as he set what seemed like the hundredth empty wine bottle to the side. Who even has as many empty wine bottles just laying around? Aha! Philbert exclaimed, holding a small bottle triumphantly in the air. Kev visibly slumped over. Thank God, I was starting to go cross-eyed. Okay, well what do we do now? Where's the second song Rebecca hid? Philbert got to his feet and started feeling around the walls of the cellar. That's just the thing. Rebecca always had it on her for safekeeping, just like I do. The fact that someone could kidnap one of us never even crossed any of our minds. Can either of you help me find the button to let us out? Kev rubbed the sides of his head in frustration, but stood up. So what you're telling me is that Denise has not two, but three out of the six songs? Potentially four, even. Albert, that's the butcher, has been missing for, for months. We all thought he just moved out, but after Rebecca's kidnapping, I'm starting to think differently. Great, so what are we supposed to do? Waltz up to Megamart and demand Denise give us back all the songs and release Rebecca? Sounds like a suicide mission to me. Maybe, except Denise doesn't know where you two are. We have the element of surprise. We also know where the last two songs are, so we can use that to bargain with her. Dennis looked wary. I don't know if that's a smart plan. Philbert furiously turned on him. Oh yeah, then what do you suggest, huh? Dennis gulped and looked down. That's what I thought, Philbert huffed. Now, unless either of you have a better plan, I suggest you listen to me. Denise is a smart lady, so we have to be careful about how we go about this. Kev finally found the way out of the cellar and was about to push the button when sounds could be heard above their heads. All three froze. Shit, Dennis breathed. A throng of hairy, black spiders fell from the ceiling, landing on Filbert's head and shoulders. Filbert yelped, desperately trying to swipe them off as the grotesque arachnids crawled over him. He stumbled back and tripped over a glass bottle. His back smashed into a half dozen bottles as he hit the floor, cracking some and sending others spinning across the ground. The cacophony resounded through the cellar. Kev gritted his teeth at the eruption of noise, his blood pulsing in his veins. Then, to his horror, he heard the sound of approaching footsteps from the other side of the cellar door. Who's in there? A baritone voice demanded. A security guard, no doubt. Come out with your hands in the air. No sudden movements. Kev shot Dennis a morbid look, and Dennis returned the expression. Even Filbert, still on the floor, fell silent. 
his eyes wide. Hide, Dennis hissed, whispering through his clenched teeth. The three companions hastily scanned the room, looking for some hiding place, but no place presented itself. Thinking quickly and with no options left, they scrambled to the wall against which the staircase rested. Kev, just to the right of the stairs, and Dennis and Filbert, now on two legs again, pressed against the left-hand side. I'm coming in, barked the security guard. The companions heard the sound of hinges snapping as the door was kicked in, and a burst of light, a flashlight most likely, beamed into the room. Dennis's eyebrows shot up and he leaned farther to the left, his shirt sleeve just outside the cone of light. Footsteps echoed through the room as the guard walked down the staircase. You thieves aren't taking anything tonight, he spat in a gruff voice. A shiver ran down Dennis's spine. They hadn't been seen yet, but they were sure to be found in a moment. The footsteps grew louder. The three companions' gaze darted between each other, each hoping the other had a plan. Then, just as the guard stepped into a cellar, Dennis reached for one of the multitudinous glass bottles on the floor, his body zipping faster than it ever had, and smashed the glass bottle onto the security guard's head. The muscular, uniformed man crumpled to the floor, unconscious. All three friends exhaled a sigh of relief, a vein bulging in Kev's temple. Without hesitating, Dennis stepped forward. Come on, guys, he said, the fear in his voice slowly fading. I have the song. Let's go while we still can. He stepped over the sleeping figure and jogged up the stairs. Kevin and Filbert followed close behind, their senses returning. None of them looked back. They snuck out of the store, the cloudy night concealing their silhouettes. The companions stepped into their awaiting car, Kev at the wheel, and drove smoothly out into the night, headlights off. Filbert broke the silence. We did it, boys, he shouted, a triumphant smirk upon his face. We've got ourselves another song. He reached forward and patted Dennis, sitting in shotgun, on the back. Nice quick thinking back there, man. Dennis returned the smile. I did what I could, he said nonchalantly. Filbert held up the newly acquired song like a trophy, then placed it in his pocket along with the other. The glass felt cool against his fingers. He grinned to himself. They had won back another song, but the joy was muddled with something darker. Dread. Tomorrow, they would save Rebecca. Or die. Trying. The digital clock read 5.09 a.m. as the companions sat in Dennis's apartment, constructing their plan of action. The blueprints of Megamart covered the table. Denise's office circled in a red sharpie. Four glass bottles sat on the table. Filbert spoke. So as soon as Megamart opens in a few hours, we'll stride right up to Denise and speak to her, preferably in her office. We'll cut her a deal, Kev continued, arms crossed. Two songs in exchange for two prisoners. But what she won't know, Dennis finished, index finger pointed towards the two bottles on the right, is that we'll be giving her fakes, exact replicas of the real songs, which will be locked in the safe here, in my apartment. Indeed, they had spent the entire night sleeplessly crafting facsimiles of their songs. Dennis and Kev looked admiringly at Filbert, whose astonishing craftsmanship had allowed them to pursue such a bold plan. No doubt his years of experience working at the hardware store had come in handy. A quiet aura prevailed for a moment. The only sound was Kev's foot tapping nervously on the floor. Their plan was a dangerous gamble, but it just might work. As the sun rose the next morning, Filbert, Kev, and Dennis strode into Megamark, heads held high. They sauntered up to a door on the north wall labeled D. Saperstein, and Filbert banged his fist against it five times. Come in, a chilling voice replied. I'd imagine that's you, Filbert. 
Filbert turned a doorknob and swung it open, revealing a black, windowless office. At the other end sat a metal desk, and behind it, Denise Saperstein herself. She stared them down, her fingers pressed lightly together in front of her nose, her elbows on the desk. Without a word, Dennis, Filbert, and Kev stepped inside. Then Kev slammed the door shut. Denise's eyes widened as she realized that Filbert was not alone. But in a moment, the look of hesitation had vanished as quickly as it had appeared. She locked eyes with Filbert, neither blinking. Silently, Filbert reached into his pocket and set the two fake songs on the table. Then, brusquely, he said, Tell us where Rebecca is, and we'll give you a song. Tell us where Albert, the butcher, is, and we'll give you another. That desperate, Denise replied sardonically, a hideous sneer in her voice. You really care about those buffoons more than the songs themselves? Kev and Dennis kept their distance, trying to look as intimidating as possible. Their arms were crossed, their legs were shoulder-width apart, and their expressions were contorted into deep scowls. But both were holding their breath. Would the deception succeed? Filbert tried his best to look conflicted, as if giving up the fake songs was the hardest decision of his life. Taking a deep breath in through his nose, he said slowly, Nothing is worth more than a human life. He paused, trying to sell his look of defeat. Even if it means losing a song or two. Denise scrutinized the two bottles. Would she see through the guise? You've gotten another song since we talked last. You broke into Schwarman Cowell's store, I presume? Filbert nodded, his brow furrowed. Silence lingered in the air. Then, after what felt like an eternity, she reached for one of the bottles and stated, without a hint of remorse, I've locked Rebecca in the basement of the old sawmill on the northeast side of town. Denise slipped the song into her pocket. Filbert retained his furrowed gaze. How do we know you're telling the truth? I suppose you don't, was the rejoinder. Then she reached into her pocket and pulled out a key. She set it on the table gingerly, then continued. But I do have the key to the building. It would be an opportunity missed to have access to the premises and not use such a privilege, wouldn't you agree? Filbert stared at the key. It had the McGregor and Sons lumber mill logo engraved onto it, along with the words do not copy and a serial number. He didn't trust Denise, but he had no better option. His right hand reached for the key, fingers clasping around it. Then he pulled his hand back quickly and placed the key in his pocket. Next, Denise smoothly put the second song in her pocket and said, Albert is also hidden there, she cackled to herself. And you could have figured that out had you fact-checked me before giving me the second song. Filbert cursed under his breath. This, he knew, was the truth. It gave Denise too much satisfaction and them too much frustration for it not to be the case. Even so, Filbert exhaled a sigh of relief. Denise had fallen for the fakes. The three friends nodded to each other. Kev reached for the door, but suddenly Denise grabbed something under her desk, then stood up, knocking her chair over in the process, and extended her arm. In her hand was a pistol. The companions froze. You imbeciles, Denise sneered. I would never debase myself by engaging in a quid pro quo with you scum. Now you three know the truth. But now I must ensure that I am the only one with the truth once more. Filbert's heart pounded. The barrel of the gun was directed straight at him. He didn't breathe. However, the friends had one ace up their sleeve. Filbert's hand was still in his pocket, and his fingers began to surreptitiously search within it. Not for the key, but for a switch. 
As Denise spoke, Filbert's fingers traced across the switch, and he flipped it. The buzz of a high-voltage electric shock filled the room. Denise grunted weakly, and her body went limp. She fell to the floor. Filbert grinned. Not only were the bottles in her pocket fakes, but they were rigged with a tiny yet high-voltage battery and transparent conductive lining, delivering a huge shock to those in contact with it when turned on. Kev smirked. Filbert's hardware skills were impressive indeed. Denise gasped on the floor, stunned but not unconscious. Thinking quickly, Filbert leapt over the desk, kicked the gun out of Denise's slackened grasp, and fumbled for the legitimate song he knew would be on her. He found it in seconds. Come on, let's go, Kev shouted. He threw the door open and he and Dennis bolted out. Filbert hurtled the desk once more and zipped out of the office, slamming the door shut again as he escaped. Their plan had worked. The companion's car screeched to a stop outside of McGregor and Son's sawmill. The car doors shot open and the friends sprinted to the nearest entrance to the abandoned building. Filbert held his breath, trying Denise's key. He inserted the key into the lock, twisted it, and heard a satisfying click. The door swung open. With a victorious whoop, Kev, Dennis, and Filbert ran inside the abandoned complex, rusting machinery sitting throughout the high-ceilinged room. Kev pointed to a doorway labeled stairwell, and they sped down the twisting steps. After 15 minutes of searching the labyrinthine hallways of the basement, they found the captives. Rebecca and Albert were sitting on wooden chairs bound by tight ropes. Duct tape covered their mouths. Hastily, Kev attended to Rebecca while Dennis freed Albert. Rebecca and Albert stood, their eyes wide with relief, and they gave their respective rescuers a bear hug. You saved us, Rebecca gasped, delighted. Denise, she... We know, Filbert said. We've taken care of her. The five engaged in a group hug. Then Dennis spoke. We've still got some business to do. The other four nodded in agreement. First off, we need to make sure all the songs are taken care of. Secondly, in all this excitement, I'm pretty sure a few of us have forgotten something really important. He continued to speak as the five of them hustled out of the basement. After this, let's meet in two weeks' time at Dennis's place. We can spend the time making sure we've resolved everything that we definitely forgot about. The others replied in the affirmative. Excitement and heroism pulsated through Dennis's being as the group jogged from the sawmill to the car. Rebecca and Albert were saved, but there were still a few things left to do. Two weeks later, the gang sat around Dennis's dinner table, laughter and affable conversation filling the room. Thank goodness all that stuff is taken care of, Filbert chortled. Can you believe that in the heat of the moment we totally forgot about all those really important things? I know, right? Dennis's wife replied, a glass of Pinot Noir in her hands. <laughs> what? It's amazing how fickle our memories are. Anyway, I'm so glad we've fixed all that. Everybody hurrahed in agreement. The evening continued on, their smiles illuminated by candlelight. In just two weeks, they had accounted for all the songs and placed them in safe, appropriate locations. Everyone who had been kidnapped had been saved. Denise had been arrested for attempted murder. All that had been forgotten was accounted for. As the evening turned to night, the joyous mood remained. The end. Now that we're done with that, let's get some thoughts on everybody's view on the experience. 
Uh, hey, do you want to start us off why Pinot Noir is so funny? Oh, yeah, I really love the surprise appearance of his wife coming back at the <laughs> end. I'm glad they resolved all those issues. Yeah, maybe um, Dennis spent the two weeks resolving his marriage problems. Mm, there you go. Classic midlife crisis. Classic. <laughs> One of the best things is the fact that, like, Dennis actually remained the central character. Just oh, like yeah, that's kind yeah. of that's kind of impressive. Minus his I mean, minus this like, brief, he, like, brief stint as David, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <that's> true. <laughs> which is funny. But also, but also he like was really timid throughout throughout most of it, and then all of a sudden he like became like the main hero, I guess, which was kind of funny. Yeah, that story's actually shockingly consistent. There's like yeah. a, a guy locked in a Kafka-esque cycle who needs something new, something fresh, and ta-da! A magical story that involves gunfighting when you have magic spells at your side. There you go. Oh, uh, Alana, how did you feel when the magical uh, trap door, Black Void, was now a wooden door that you could kick in? I, I mean, probably the same way that uh, I transformed the uh, the package into like an actual like box like chest um, you know was anyone disappointed that something didn't come up that you had hinted mm -hmm. at or that you were like kind of intimating when you wrote your part i was disappointed a bit that the package was actually opened eventually like i wanted it to be like from pulp fiction have you guys seen pulp fiction yeah, yeah. where there's a briefcase oh. that's never oh. opened oh. or not you don't know what's in it ever i was like Man, wouldn't it be great if it gets to Scott and it just never gets open and everyone's <laughs> like, wonder what was in the box. Yeah. So just to be clear, what was in the box? He just said. No, I mean in our our story, it was the it was, song. It was the clue. No, no, it was a clue ah, to, the 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 song. Except, to the song. Except for the fact that it was, it had music in it beforehand. So I, I mean. It was a music it was, box. It was, it was a music box, but with the clue. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, Tim, can I ask what exactly is? What were you imagining is a tangible song, like a crystal or something? I, I didn't think that through. <laughs> I just read that, um, I think from Hades' part, there's a lot of like sound descriptors. Mm. So um, I thought like each of the stores maybe had like a theme. So I like put country music in for the hardware store and like the um, pop, like the background music for like Mega Mart. What was the store you started with that Dennis actually works in? Store and Mart? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what's the most ridiculous name for a store slash mini mart? Like, store and mart. Okay. Well, Haiti, what did you think when you first read, like, my, I, like, just, let's just go one by one. Like, what did you guys think when you read the part before yours? So, Haiti, what did you think? I thought there was more of a backstory with him and the family. Um, and I was curious to know what his connection to this box was. Like, I thought maybe he had seen it before. He was, like, trying to find Schwarman Cowl? How do we pronounce I'm not really sure. but Schwarman uh, Cowl? Uh, yeah, however you're feeling, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I thought that was the biggest thing. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, also, the um, there was one location that was at the bottom of the, your script that I don't remember. I'll check. I was, yeah, sorry. Um, or Serenity. No, Serenity. Oh, yeah, Ooh, I was like, why is she important? Like... I, were they having an affair or something? I thought he had just like interacted with her once, and yeah, I don't know. I wanted that to be as mysterious as the, I was like, yeah, I'll just throw in this little name, like not like everybody else on my character list, either had some vague no nameness to them, <laughs> or was directly referred to via relation. Like my character list is Dennis, Dennis's wife, <laughs> Dennis's children, <laughs> Subway commuter, 
Serenity and Elderly Lady. I know, I was so taken by Serenity. I was really vying for the Dennis and Kev love story, though. I don't know if you oh. caught that. With, like, Kevis? a smile. Kevis, there we go. Sorry, I can't win them all. Maybe they went oh, on... Oh, <laughs> Two-week-long... Uh, um, oh, 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 insert pun. They went on a two-week-long honeymoon in Haiti. But um, Because you're Haiti. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, Tim, what are your thoughts on like Haiti's part? That are like just the the last page you read? Cause like part of it was Haiti and Kev, or no, I'm um, Kev. <laughs> Seren- David. <laughs> Serenity and Kev like also didn't know what was going on, so I was like books and soup. I can work with that, <laughs> and yeah. And what made you like? What what were you sort of thinking? Like, you would take it. Like, you you kind of took it from a very, like, creepy real world esque world to like, oh, this tricycle's flying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, when you want to fly in tricycle, <laughs> like a uh, Hagrid's motorcycle. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, did you get a vibe that it was at all like, a, a fantasy story up to that point, or were you like, if it's not a fantasy story yet, I'm making it one. <laughs> I feel like people don't go into antique stores, <laughs> except in like a fantasy novels where like there's magic or some shit. Yeah. And then it went to Alana. Alana, what did you think of Tim's part? <laughs> okay, so the first part that I read was the tricycle falling from the sky. <laughs> so I was sitting there like, what? <laughs> like, what is happening right now? Um, but yeah, so like I definitely got the the magic and um, fantasy vibe from that. And like when. I think you described the songs in, in that last page. It's like what I was picturing was something like, you know, in The Little Mermaid, how like her voice gets trapped in like the mm-hmm. seashell. I was picturing something like that. I don't know. Like where you open the cork and it's like a song. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was just like, yeah, it was it was it was difficult to understand. But I was like, let's just just take it somewhere weird now. And if I may interject, I think it's fair to say you, Alana, probably have the toughest uh, leg to pick up because it's one page of fantasy, and I think you said it starts in the middle of a sentence. Yeah, I think it. I think it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of cohesive, like a little bit. And then Scott, what was your your? Mm. I mean, you had to wrap it up too. So. Uh yeah, so uh, I obviously had been anticipating for something like four weeks, um, because we each had one week to write our leg. I remember receiving the email in the physics lounge and I shouted, my exquisite corpse has arrived. <laughs> and um, Anime and Alexis who are in the room looked at me and they're like, what? And and then I, I looked them in the eyes and I'm like, and I get to bury it. <laughs> and then I like jumped up and started like virtually dancing around. I'm like, hold on, I have to be back. I have to go bury this exquisite corpse. And so I ran out of the room and only after like a half hour did I realize maybe I should have explained the context of that. <laughs> um... But anyway, I read your page about a half dozen times because I could tell that you were dropping a lot of hints that like you're doing a very good job of not uh, directly summarizing the story, but ingraining little hints here and there so that I could understand. And I wanted I knew there was something fantasy, but I did some sort of risk analysis where I thought like, well, if it isn't fantasy and I'm just interpreting that incorrectly, then that ending's going to be terrible. <laughs> but if it is fantasy and I kind of ignore it, then it will be like a decent-ish ending. Uh, so I went with the normal door rather than the magical trap door. 
Uh, in retrospect, maybe I should have just gone wholehearted, or what's the phrase, go whole hog and took a risk, but I, I think it came together pretty well. And finally, Matt, what was it like for you starting off this Exquisite Corpse project? Nothing to go on. You have to pull pull out the start out of thin air. So I think I mentioned it to almost everybody, like, after I knew they were done with their part, that I... I initially wanted to make it a detective story <laughs> where this guy's a hard, like Dennis is a hard-boiled detective and he's like, like uh, the opening lines are like he's leaving the, the store and he wipes sweat or something from his head. It was initially supposed to be like blood from the side of his lip and the store is just like a huge crime scene where he had to fight a bunch of baddies or whatever. Like, bah! And then I was like, I started off the mystery and I was like, okay, there's a murder mystery. And then I was like, never mind. I cannot drop any sort of clues such to the extent that by the time it got to maybe the third or fourth person, they'd still understand it's a murder mystery that needs to be resolved. So I was like, scrap that. Dennis is a totally normal guy. <laughs> um, is, is your idea of totally normal having a failing marriage and a <laughs> terrible job? No, that all happened like little by little. I was like, hmm... He works a job, and he has family and apartment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was it. And then I just, like, <laughs> I everything I wrote was, like, improvised writing, where I'm like, and then they say this, and then this <laughs> person said this, and then he's on the subway, and some guy starts talking to him. <laughs> he vomits on his shoes, because why not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Did Oh, did you notice that it's like Matt when he said like when he went home at the end of the day there's still vomit on his shoe if yeah. I may ask like where were you going with this story did you have any idea how we would take it no I was just like you know I'll leave it a little I'll leave it open ended where I, I thought for a moment I was like should I leave it at the door where he's deciding whether or not to leave and make it very explicit that he's like conflicted and then leave it as like a bandersnatch thing mm -hmm. for Haiti to be like he leaves or he doesn't, like, press the button. He leaves or he doesn't leave. Mm -hmm. And I, I decided that I'd, I'd try and make it a little more open world ended where it was like, he's at the door, ready to leave, and he has this mystery. I was like, mystery box. This is a good idea. <laughs> and it'll never be open. <laughs> and for a long time while listening to it in here, I was like, yes, it's not getting opened. It's not getting opened. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and then it was like, open sesame. And I was like, okay, well, it's open. But at least it was open in the comedic fashion. <laughs> um, wait, Haiti, what did you see um, like Serenity and Kev as? Um, Serenity, I... So it, it seemed like Serenity was completely out of the picture by the end of the first page that I had read. <laughs> so I, I was kind of seeing her as like a fleeting encounter that had been like dropped in there somewhere in the first chunk. And um, so that was supposed to be like a mysterious reappearance of someone i wasn't really sure where i was going with that but kev was like really vying for that love story right <laughs> <then>. <laughs> um not to get too sappy but i really kind of enjoy how each leg of us kind of reflected uh how not only how we write but how we think in a sense we each got to shape the world and we shaped it in a way that reflects ourselves not with his like humorous cynicism but like jolly at the heart uh haiti with your artistic uh music almost like in a steinbeck fashion uh tim with your uh, well frankly phantasmagorical fantasy alana with your well i don't really know how to describe you <laughs> i mean i was kind of just more like playing off of what tim had wrote so like playing off of like that whole fantasy thing 
And then I think a lot of what I do is I base, like, my writing on, like, things that I've seen before. So I read a lot of, like, fantasy and adventure stuff. So, like, that's kind of how it happened. Um, And, like, with the whole, like, trapdoor and, like, riddles and, like, that was, it's very, I don't know. I was kind of thinking very Harry Potter Mm -hmm. in this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, like, gave me a lot of inspiration for that. Um, Yeah. But I guess kind of just bouncing off of what I was I read in like the last page and then me well I don't really know how to describe myself either but I think the risk analysis did a pretty good job <laughs> yeah. I'm just wondering did anyone try and like like focus on certain aspects of their writing style not just the plot but like the writing itself because I remember I mentioned smell a lot throughout mine because I was like no one ever does smell imagery there was like sound oh, oh, I took an ID one close about I was, smell <laughs> I was like I gotta do some some smell imagery in here. Cosmos. Yeah. yeah. Oh right. yeah. I was like, smell the cosmos. Smells was... garbage. Everything smells. All the... <laughs> smells burning eggs. <laughs> uh, I actually really like those, like those descriptors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did anyone else like try like think about the writing besides or like the actual like way they wrote it? I also realized I wrote very choppy at times when he was doing <laughs> things. I was like, he like inhale, exhale, does this, opens door. What was oh, the like, blinking thing? Oh, you never do that? You never, like, fall... You never blink, like, reading something, and then you're like, oh, wow, it's now 20 minutes later. (laughs) What? Is that a blink at that point? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What were you saying, Haiti, about the risk analysis sums me up? Just because I'm analytical and my friends mistake me for Mitsuko? (laughs) That was a reference to episode four, by the way. Um, sadly, I'm not aware of that reference. I feel... Like I'm not worthy of this. Oh, uh, in episode four, we did a Turing test where Matt had to tell the difference between me and a chatbot AI and thought we were the other way around. That's <laughs> really funny. <laughs> I am excited to listen to that. Um, no, I just think it's funny that part of how you were going about it, I feel like, at least for myself, I'm a very kind of spontaneous writer. I'll just like do whatever's coming to my mind. Um, like the tree, I was just like, let's just have him be in a tree. Like, why, why not? Um, <laughs> And, no, I, I think that it's very, like, forward-thinking of you not only to do the risk analysis, but kind of have that chunk in there of, and we finished everything we might have forgotten to do. Yeah, yeah like, that, that seemed very much like something Scott would say. Yeah. Like, I, didn't, I wouldn't picture any of us to, like, have, like, an idea to do that. Mm-hmm. It was very creative. I think, that would happen to me. <laughs> I think it might be that I wrote in a slightly different style knowing that I was the end because... I guess I felt like a a sense of responsibility that I wasn't just writing my leg of the story, but I was writing our story. Um, So maybe I wouldn't have been so methodical and uh, analytical had I said, say, started it off or been leg three of five. Uh, But yeah, I do think of moral dilemmas in terms of integrals and calculus. So yeah, I think (laughs) I think the risk analysis may sum up my mind. You said you like climbing trees, right? And like, yeah, yeah, I noticed that. Dennis ends up in a tree. Classic. <laughs> uh, can I just uh, give you guys a, a pat on the back? The fact that we created this and it actually is a generally coherent story that yeah, makes it's sense. Great. Good job, everyone. Where's Serenity, though? Like, <laughs> what happened to her? <laughs> yeah, where did she go? She was like. Oh, yeah, okay. She wasn't mentioned in my one page, so I was like, I guess I'm not going to mention her. I came back with the Pinot Noir. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to tack her on in the end and just have Serenity be at the dinner party, but then I thought, oh, what happens if, like, Tim had her killed off halfway and then she just magically appears again? 
I guess that was another risk analysis, which in retrospect I should have just gone for. But no regrets, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and Haiti, if I can ask, um, what like what was that like? What was that? St- I remember in the start you mentioned music in yours. You were like, and then this came out. I was, was that also part of your like spontaneous? Oh, so spontaneous. I was like, well, what would he be doing? And I, I also think it went to show, um how he was feeling right then. I, I think I, you left off your leg um, very triumphant. He seemed very excited, like smelling the cosmos. That was a really cool ending to that. And I wanted to kind of continue that in sort of a positive, like he was happy, he felt free type of, type of vibe. Mm-hmm. I feel like this whole story started off very deep and then kind <laughs> of went very, uh, like, fantasy, like, just, like, fairy tale, mm-hmm. like, which is really funny. No, I enjoyed it. It was great. Although that does pose the question, if Dennis got back together with his wife, what what does that look like for Kevness? <laughs> True. Um, It'd be maybe like we a should write an exquisite sequel. Exquisite sequel. <laughs> exquisite sequel. Kevin Dennis' love exquisite story. Exquisite twin. <laughs> One course two. All right. Usually, uh, we have the music slowly escalate, and then we say thank you for listening to, and then we all say in unison, the phantasmagorical think tank. Though at this part, the music is slowly probably rising in the uh, post-recording edit. And then we all say thank you for listening to the phantasmagorical think tank.